the you kind of like this guy, but when you can't decide between the filet o fish or the Big Mac, and he says, I'll get you both. Thank you. You definitely <laughs> like this guy meal. Get it at McDonald's when you get two of your faves for just six bucks. Limited time only. Prices and participation may vary. Single item at regular price. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season really is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us this week as Mike is away, Vanity Fair senior staff writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello. So uh, this week we've drafted Joanna to talk about two subjects very close to her heart. I actually can't imagine two better topics to have Joanna to uh, chime in on. Uh, We're going to start with Roadies, which is Cameron Crowe's new Showtime series. Uh, He won an Oscar for the screenplay for Almost Famous, and he's basically been fighting an uphill battle ever since. With his movies that were either perplexing, like Vanilla Sky, or totally hated, like Aloha. And it seems like television might be his chance for a comeback, and we're going to talk about whether or not that's actually going to happen. And then from there, we'll check in one last time on the ongoing season of Game of Thrones, which will air its finale on Sunday, and just aired its most ambitious episode of the season, maybe ever, uh, with Battle of the Bastards. Uh, It's been visually dazzling, that episode being no exception. But Joanna, you had a really interesting piece on Sunday talking about the dramatic stakes of this season. And uh, we'll talk about whether or not it's actually as daring as it used to be. But first, the week in Oscar news, which, as it sometimes is, is also the week in blockbuster news. Uh, Finding Dory made a ton of money, you guys. Uh, I haven't seen it. Joanna, I know you saw it. Richard, did you? No, I, you know, I actually still shamefully haven't seen Finding Nemo. I think I confessed <laughs> on the podcast this week. So, so I'm really behind on this whole cinematic universe, let's say. Oh, well, the ocean is full of yeah. depths and uh, probably many more sequels where that came from. Yeah, and I guess I'm not, I, th- that said, though, I'm not surprised that it did as well as it did. It was the highest opening animated film ever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even though it was 13 years late, you know, after the fact, after Nemo came out. Um, that's a beloved property and Ellen is still beloved and mm-hmm. everything about it just worked. And I think that, uh, you know, the, 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 the kid movie season has sort of been at a lull. So this really, cause I think everyone cleared the decks for this movie and yeah, and it basically paid, paid Zootopia, off. which was uh, three months ago at this point. Right. This. Right. Yeah. Um, it was Zootopia, which was also a huge hit, mm-hmm. not, not quite this big, but, um, but yeah, those, you know, that Pixar, you know, after a, a kind of a bumpy end to last year, yeah, uh, the dinosaur is, was rough for them. It's this is really good good news for them. Although I guess it does kind of concern me a little bit in that, um, you know, obviously the Toy Story sequels are fantastic, and um, you know, so so I'm not saying that a Pixar sequel is necessarily a bad thing. But you look at something like Cars, which is really just exists to make merchandise, and you know, it's kind of the cash in. It's, they're not never as good as. Um, other Pixar kind of standalone titles like Inside Out, for example. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, as, as good as I hear Finding Dory is, um, you know, you worry a little bit about Pixar falling trapped to the same kind of sequelitis that's um, plagued, you know, Disney and other yeah. companies. And Joanna, you saw the movie. Do you feel like it uh, does it have that sequel problem, or does it kind of stand on its own? No, I mean it's basically the exact same movie as Finding Nemo. <laughs> um, I I liked it. I didn't like it as much as Finding Nemo, maybe because I'm 13 years older. Yeah. Um, and I wonder how much that 13 year gap was like perfectly timed to get the people who, you know, it mattered so much to them when they were younger and maybe they have kids now or oh my God. whatever. I, I don't know how young people are having kids these days, but anyway, point being. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not like you were a kid when Finding Nemo came out either. Like you weren't, you didn't grow up clutching a stuffed door. No, I was, so. I was in, yeah, I was in college when it came out, yeah. but, uh, but I remember weeping openly in the theater in college <laughs> yeah. and I did, I did not do that uh, for Finding Dory. I thought it was very cute um, and, and, 
some really funny, clever stuff. I have a like a natural fear of, of octopi, octopuses. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think a rational fear, that- honestly. <laughs> the Ed O'Neill character was was terrifying to me, but um, for for me actually, what I really loved more than Finding Dory was the was the short uh, Piper that was in front of it. I haven't liked a Pixar short. I don't know, since Presto, I think it was, which was several years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think this is the best one they've had in a long time. It's a really charming, silent story about a bird on the California shore and digitally, technologically, a, like very amazing. And Pixar gets nominated a lot for a short animated film, but they don't win a lot. So I actually think they could win both uh, feature and animated short this year. Yeah, and you wrote a piece about Piper on VF.com that people should read if they're interested on how that happened and and kind of pointed out that it makes the animated short category, which we have stressed over on this podcast in the past, a little bit easier because, uh, you know, last year Pixar short was Lava, which everyone hated and wasn't even nominated. So (laughs) it's a lot easier this time around. Richard, do you feel like Finding Dory is like, you know, are you going to settle your animated feature ballot now? No, I mean, I think that there are some other upcoming films like in the animated world that uh, could and probably likely will pose a threat to uh, even as beloved as it is, a, a, you know, a kind of like sequel. Um, I think that probably the biggest one on my radar is Moana or how do you, how do you Moana? Power, Moana. Think, yeah. the, it's a Disney um, set, in, set in the South Pacific, I believe kind of, it's the next kind of, they're calling it princess movie. It's a musical, um, you know, from what everything they just released a trailer uh, recently uh, on TV, right? Um, and yeah, during the Tonys. During the, the Tonys, which is which connection. is which is perfect. Lin Manuel Miranda is a voice in it. Um, you know, I think that it looks gorgeous, and um, you know, given how what a sensation Frozen was uh, and still is, uh, I think that all eyes are sort of on that to see if Disney can. Um, continue this revitalization of the princess movies that hasn't really happened you know since the early late 80s with little mermaid when they brought it back or kind of reinvented it i think in some ways that's going to get more attention than than dory despite this enormous box office uh for for me i'm really looking forward to kubo and the two strings which is a leica uh film i think leica does who did uh, box trolls like i think they do amazing amazing animation work uh there it has been some uh pre-pushback about the voice cast, uh, which includes at least Matthew McConaughey, um, it's it's sort of it's a at least Asian inspired story, and the voice cast is pretty much predominantly white. So, uh, given the larger conversation we're having about Asian actors and their representation in film, uh, should this extend to voice acting? Probably. So, I don't know if that film is just going to be embattled in that kind of controversy. But um, well, that'll be it another looks place. Incredible. That'll be another place where Moana kind of pushes the conversation forward because it's got Dwayne Johnson, who's uh, of many different heritage, but I think Pacific Islanders in there, and a uh, newcomer as the main voice so right which was sort of i mean disney is i think made a real conscious effort towards that like with the jungle book mm-hmm. trying to do like a non-white casting for these films that push into different cultures even in the voice voice realm yeah so. and pixar movies as beloved as they are uh, are generally very white and voiced by a lot of white people like finding dory so that could be you know as the oscar so white conversation really never ends it continues in the next season that'll be something that'll affect even the animated race it seems like Another animated movie I just wanted to draw quick attention to, just because I have a personal um, connection with it, uh, is Trolls. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) 
when I was in Cannes with our own Julie Miller, we went to a Trolls event that there is a post on uh, VF.com all about this Trolls event. Um, a must read, I would say. It was the must go to event at Cannes. <laughs> um, the movie looks crazy. It's a musical with using extant pop songs, although some new stuff also that Justin Timberlake wrote. Um, with Anna Kendrick and Justin Timberlake as, as the lead voices. Um, it's based on the toys. It's um, It looks, we saw like, I don't know, uh, 15 minutes worth of clips from it, uh, from a footage of it. It, it looks insane. Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but um, I will eagerly be seeing Trolls just to see what the end product of this bizarre and and rather lavish can presentation is. Well, and uh, the Justin Timberlake song for that movie is currently number two in the Billboard charts. So uh, this oh, is the world that we are living in. It shows in. how much I know about music. Yeah, I have no we're, idea. We're that, already in the Trolls yeah. world. Uh, so Okay, and we're just living in it. Yeah, yeah just get used to it now. I suffer from short-term memory loss. Yes! That's exactly what you say. Okay, okay. We'll pretend to be the other kids now. <clears throat> Hi, Dory! Ahoy there! <laughs> Do you want to play hide-and-seek? Okay. <laughs> we'll hide, and you count and come find us. Okay, Daddy. No, no, not Daddy. I'm the nice fish who wants to be your friend. Okay? Okay, Daddy. No. I'm hiding! Now count to ten. One, two, three. So, Joanna, this week you have published a piece on VF.com about your visit to the set of Roadies, which is uh, Cameron Crowe's first TV series and really ought to be a kind of a comeback for someone who is still really beloved for films like Say Anything and Almost Famous, but uh, is coming off of last year's Aloha, which was a a rough patch for anyone. Uh, Having watched him at work, Joanna, and we can talk about the quality of the show itself, which uh, you guys have both seen. But uh, Joanna, since you were there, kind of watching this happen, like, does does Cameron Crowe think this is his comeback? Like, is that is that what he is really feeling? This is for him. I don't think he's considering it a comeback, but I think he's con- he considered filming Rhodey's a, a welcome escape from all the all the drama surrounding Aloha. And I think what he just did was sort of knuckle down and. and recommit to a sphere that he's very comfortable in because a lot of, as many, many people pointed out, this is the closest spiritual successor to Almost Famous, which is probably his most beloved film that he made, uh, given that it's about, you know, a band, a touring band and the roadies that go on tour with them. Um, so I, I think, you know, the atmosphere on set was not at all, I don't know, depressed or fearful or anything like that. There didn't seem to be an aloha cloud hanging over it. It seemed very optimistic, and everyone was uh, very, very passionate about the project. Uh, I have never heard people be so passionate about their work, and I think that just has to do with this really bewitching Kool-Aid that Cameron Crowe tends to brew, that once people drink like they are on board, he is like that kind of uh, benevolent leader that people like to follow, because he does, I think write and direct very much from the heart uh, to mixed results for sure. But I think you can never accuse him of doing something that he isn't completely committed to. So. so is that kind of what explains like his, you know, it's been 15 years since he's really had something across the board hit. Like, is that why people keep continuing to come back to work with him? Like he has that, 
that kind of general leader leadership power that makes people want to get on board. Yeah, and just a like a very rare authenticity, you know, in Hollywood. Either that or he's like the biggest <laughs> snake oil salesman in the world, but he just seems to give off this very genuine quality of I care about what I'm doing. And I, and I think when he has an emotional vested stake in something it's all the better, you know, like Vanilla Sky and Aloha, which I would consider the two projects that I respond the least to, I think are the furthest away from his own experience. Whereas like We Bought a Zoo may not be, have anything to do with his life, but the things it says about being a dad, I think at least shine through in that. And so, you know, if Matt Damon wants to go play a dad for Cameron Crowe, like I, I think that that was a worthy if spotty project, mm-hmm. you know? So, Richard, you've seen the result of this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we want to be as fair to Cameron Crowe as it can be, but I don't think, I, f- I feel like from what I've, what I've heard from you, it doesn't come together the way that we were hoping it would. Well, to be fair, I've only seen the first three. But, yeah, from what I've seen, um, some of Cameron Crowe's more con- recent problems seem to plague this show. Um, and what I was curious about, Joanna, uh, is if you ever got a sense, this is what I, I had this question watching it, like obviously the almost famous experience is one that he in some version lived in his own life as a, as a kid, right. um, as this kind of precocious rock journalist. Is that the last time that he experienced this life on the road? I mean, is he really drawing on, you know, 30, 40 year old experience at this point? Because mm-hmm. there is a point, there are points in the show that I feel like really connect and I'm like, yeah, that, that might be actually how it's like. And then others that feel a little bit sort of inferred or guessed about the kind of contemporary experience on the road. Do you know what kind of any, if any research he did, you know, recently for the show? Um, I, I think you're right that he is drawing a lot on the sort of spiritual experience. And that's like mostly what he talked to me about was um, the feeling of being a fan and being part of a roadie crew. And I think you might be right in your, in your criticism. I know that there is a flashback episode this season uh, that might wind up feeling more authentic to his own experience because it's uh, set in the time that, that he actually, but as far as I know, there were no roadie like consultants on the show. I could be wrong about that, but I heard nothing about roadie consultants. Uh, and I agree with you, you know, um, I really love the show, but I really love Cameron Crowe. But even as much as I love the show, like the third episode, which centers on a, like a rock blogger, which was based on a real life experience Cameron Crowe had with a Led Zeppelin film critic. But as you say, that's a transplanted from a different time uh, experience. And so instead, now it's Rain Wilson playing a contemporary film blogger. And that episode did not land for me, mostly because the comedy of Rain Wilson rarely lands for me. But uh some of the other moments in the episode, some of the musical performances, and most of all, watching these characters watch these musical performances, I think this is, as are most of the films, Cameron's love letter to music in general, and the transportive like experience of listening to a beautiful piece of music, and whether it's Lindsay Buckingham or Rain Wolf or someone else playing, like it almost doesn't matter if I like the music, watching these people get transported by the music is a very visceral uh, element of the show, I think. Yeah, and he's always been good at, at mood. I mean, even even in uh, Aloha, there are moments that you're like, oh, I really feel something, and I don't really know what I'm feeling, but I feel... <laughs> I don't even yeah, like this yeah. movie. You know, I feel something <laughs> yeah. sort of wistful and, and, and something, and, I, and there are definitely uh, plenty of moments like that in the show. I mean, I think that my bias might be one of, you know, just sort of, 
I don't know the last time I went to a concert. Like I'm just, mm. I'm, I'm live music is not a part of my life in any real way, um, unless you count musical theater. But that's, I don't. This it's a very different experience. <laughs> that's Smash, uh, yeah, Richard. Right, right. Oh yeah. Which you know, we can talk. <laughs> let's do an episode about Smash. Um, <laughs> But, you know, but I can still at least connect to um, that sense of kind of, well, communion with other people and with, you know, a piece of art that you really like. And, and, and I think that he's always been good at capturing that. And I also think that, you know, a lot of credit should go to uh, the kind of quirky but interesting cast he's assembled, which includes Luke Wilson, Carla Giugino, Imogen Poots, um, oh, oh, Akisha Castle-Hughes. And, you know, it's a, it's a really odd assemblage of people um, from... Rafe, of, I really love Rafe Spall, Rafe Spall in this, Oh, yes, too. Rafe Spall, oh, who man, plays I love the kind Rafe of company man. Yeah, he kind of comes yeah. in to, like, to shake things up and, and weirdly has a kind of strange romantic tension with Imogen Poots, and there's something a little off about that to me. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's definitely, like, I was really looking forward to this show, and I will, I will continue to watch it. Um, it just, I think that Cameron Crowe maybe... Uh, needs to sort of tr- stop trying as hard as he is to find his voice again and just kind of like be a little mm. more natural about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that like the more sort of fluid Altman-esque moments of this show are the ones that work the best and are the, what he, he, he sh- he's maybe reliant a little too heavily on plot. I love that description, Richard, like the uh, almost fly on the wall conversations that you s- pick up between these characters as they're doing their job. Um, and, and when they're not talking about plot, the central plot, it's the best. Like the Rain Wilson episode, the third episode, uh, everything that doesn't have to do with that, I liked. So, like, all the fringy stuff, I think, is the very best of the show. I completely agree with you. And the word I've been using in my own head to describe it is shaggy. Like, I, there are parts of it that work so well. And I think that's true of every single, as you say, every single Cameron Crow movie. Even if you don't connect to the whole thing, there are moments that just feel more authentic than almost anything else you'll see. Um, it's just hoping that he leans more into that in a way from some of the other things. The other element I want to talk about was um, sort of his co-showrunner, who's Winnie Holtzman of, of My So-Called Life fame. Um, and I think she's really responsible for bringing out a lot of like Imogen Poots' character, Kellyanne, and Carla's character. Like Cameron Crowe has always been really good at the, like, the male leads, um, accessing those male leads, but I think she brings a female voice that um, balances it even a little bit more. Well, I was going to ask you guys to compare this to Vinyl, which is the other recent take on the music industry, and that one's set in the 70s, which is where Cameron Crowe's expertise comes from, but that show kind of famously famously did a lot of things that people didn't like, but the female characters were among them. Like, does this improve on that at least? I mean, 10 people watch Vinyl, so maybe this comparison doesn't mean anything to anybody. Yeah, I mean, vinyl is a lot more of an aggro kind of show, and yeah. and I think that that lends itself to a male sensibility, either whether it's um, Bobby Cannavale's or Scorsese's or Terrence Winters, like, uh, and and you know, I think that is pretty off putting on vinyl. This is a lot softer. I mean, it's still focused on Luke Wilson, and he's kind of a, like a, a sort of sad Lothario in a way. But yes, I think that the the presence of Winnie Holzman, who we should also remember, wrote the book for Wicked and is a very rich woman because of it. Oh my God, I always forget that. Yeah, yeah, she's worth she doesn't have to hundreds do of millions of dollars. Yeah, um, you know, but I think you're right, Joanna, that she that that teased out, and I think that an actress like Imogen Poots, who's really been sort of cusping for a long mm-hmm. time, um, this yeah. is a good kind of sustained role for her. And I'm, I, you know, I think that a lot of these shows have weird, you know. 
uh, bumpy first few episodes on these these cable shows. And and I think that in the Netflix model where they give you the whole season, I kind of wish that Showtime had given us the whole se- critics, you know, the whole season of, of roadies to watch because you know you there's so there is something there, especially in in you know Poots's character and a couple other people. And it's like, oh, I want to see more of that before I kind of issue any you know declarative statement yeah. about it. And I know that um, like being on the set. They all told me, you know, they were working on, I don't know, episode six or something at the time, seven maybe, um, of a 10 episode season. And I know that they had all talked about how their characters had morphed or how certain performers had been expanded because, um, of, of the way that Cameron had responded to their performance. So I know that it is very much a show that's changing, that's being written, um, not on the fly, but very close to... I don't know if, if shows are usually written as close to filming dates as, as Rhodey's is. So I think it's one that's very much responding to that kind of ebb and flow. And I agree with you. I really want it to get a second season because I think in the second season, that is where it's going to like either find its voice completely or not. And I'd really want it to get there. So And Showtime's usually pretty good at, at least investing in a show uh, for two years. Yeah, you're making me think of The Leftovers, which uh, from all accounts like turned into a completely different, really great show in its second season. That's and right. Right. There's been a lot of stories like that in recent years about shows that are given time to find their voice, which is one of the benefits of this peak TV. I think era. also in, in in a show like Rodeo's could be sort of almost anthologized in that like next season it could be a different tour for a different artist mm. and that could bring in a whole new host of storylines and you know it has potential there. It's a it's a good concept on paper. So this is the True Detective season yeah. two model, which is the less promising <laughs> version of right. Uh, right. Of, uh, <laughs> Well, as Richard pointed out, the the band is not really like Staten House, which is the fictional band, is not really a key part. They're almost you you only meet like one performer in the band. So uh, I think that you could have a different band, or more more to the point, vinyl is about sort of like the flashy big uh, elements of the music industry, and Roadies is about like the kids with electrical tape on their belts you know what I mean like that's it's a different side of the whole thing one last question for both of you I mean we've watched so many people go from the film industry to TV like it started with actresses like Lynn Close now it's Martin Scorsese and Cameron Crowe like does this feel like as we constantly talk about blockbuster season we talked about this last week like does does this feel like the model that all of our best writer directors are going to be doing eventually like is Cameron Crowe just one of the first two and then in five years like everyone who's ever won an Oscar for screenplay is going to have a TV show I think it's something a lot of people, a lot of them are going to try, and I think that we'll see how much success you know depend. I think it. I think it's a very, very different mode of storytelling, and I mean, I mean, obviously that's not a revolutionary thing to say. I yeah. mean, that's that's known, but I think that some some filmmakers and and actors even um, flourish with you know ten hours to tell a story versus two. Um, but we'll see. I mean, I think that Crow in particular. Um, has sort of been telling some version of the same story for the last 25 years in some ways, mm-hmm. or at least existing in the same world. Um, so I think that it could, that television could, could work well for him. But, um, and I think you're right, Katie, that it is a big deal that someone as sort of auteuristic and, and prolific as he is, um, has kind of decided to to dip his toe into into TV, and I I think that will only encourage more. I don't know who will be next. Well, Nicole Holof Center is yeah. who, who's directed a lot of television, but God, she's now creating she's a show. Such and, a perfect fit for a show, yeah, too. You know, yeah. so so it's exciting that you know that certain filmmakers. Um, that said, I don't I don't think I really want to see Jam- you know another James Cameron show. <laughs> I mean, Dark Angel was enough, right? That's probably true.
beside her I am the better man Something is in the air mm -hmm. When I look to leave her I always stagger back again There are so many secrets about this band and this crew But the music is good And you meet some great people So the end of another season of Game of Thrones is almost upon us, and uh, we don't know how it's all going to wrap up, though we all have some uh, ideas of where things are going to go in the finale. Uh, it seemed like a good time to check in and see just how the season has been thus far. Uh, Joanna, you have been writing about it extensively at VF the whole season, as usual, and have been an essential resource for all of us. And uh, on Sunday, after an episode that you know everyone was kind of seeing as huge and epic and big and you know, it was bloody and arrows and horses and everything, uh, but pointed out that the, the stakes weren't actually nearly as high as they were as we were being led to believe. And that seems to be a problem for you for the season as a whole. Um, and I just want to give you a chance to kind of lay out your argument for why, you know, Game of Thrones might not be as uh, daring or as adventurous as it used to be. I mean, I would say that the body count is very high this season, but one of the most the cleverest tricks that, that Game of Thrones has used this season to make us think that a lot of beloved characters are dying is bringing back old characters for like one episode. And then killing or bringing them. Ian McShane for an episode and then killing them. And so you're like, oh no, Osha! Oh, but I haven't seen you in two years and I barely remembered your name maybe. Or Rickon, who literally did not have a line of dialogue in this season. Um, <laughs> and so true. I totally didn't realize he never spoke. <laughs> and was, go yeah, and was gone for two years and was never really that like impactful to begin with like a uh, stark died in this episode but like did it really matter that much and um i don't know just the fact that you know i don't want to get like flippant about it but like the fact that you have a a huge battle episode which they've touted all uh, you know all year as their biggest most ambitious thing yet the fact that you have that and you have all these heroes going to battle davos and Tormund and john and sansa etc cetera, etc cetera, and none of them die despite the fact that at one point they're like almost literally buried by their enemies who are winning and all of them emerge unscathed to me that feels like false false peril false stakes and also that that battle the way it emerged was uh john makes an idiotic mistake and then gets saved by a deus ex machina like that to me is i don't know kind of the least interesting way you could tell that battle so point being the entire season of game of thrones where game of thrones is one so famous for very uh ruthlessly killing off main characters this whole season has been kind of uh with the exception of hodor i will give hodor some props but still hodor is not like a fully fleshed character right uh but his death was very impactful when when they it was it. i i loved that episode i thought it was the best episode um his death mattered but it's still like i mean it's still like the death of a mascot more than it is the death of a of a person that we know intimately um and there's still one episode to go so i could very well be they eating my words the cast on sunday <laughs> they may well but uh i i just think that there are certain core characters um, you, who you could all rattle off right now who are too safe in, in a world that once felt very unsafe. I mean, and a lot of that stems from the fact that the season starts with undoing the big death at the end of last season. Which you is know? Jon Snow. So it's, right, Jon Snow. So it's like, you know, Jon Snow can't die. 
can Arya die? Can Tyrion die? Can Daenerys die? Are all these people actually quite safe? And the unsafe world that we thought Game of Thrones was, where a Rob Stark, a Catelyn Stark, a Ned Stark could all die, um, just feels a lot safer now to me. Yeah, I think also, like, you know, the show, its success almost seems to have done it in a little bit because, I mean, I, I think I still like the show, I guess, but, like, you know, when you have Ned Stark dying in season one and you have the Red Wedding and you have these kind of iconic main character deaths that that, that kind of define the show, I think the show and, and in some ways its fans get addicted to that shocking death, but the problem is the show is sort of running low on compelling main characters. And mm-hmm. so they know they can, I mean, I, maybe the, the, the hesitation is like, well, we can't kill Sansa or Tyrion or Daenerys or Jon because they're kind of all we have left. And um, and so they just kind of, they bring in, you know, either tertiary characters from the past uh, and then just to unceremoniously murder them in, in an episode or they, you know, introduce new ones and then kill them within their first episode. And, yeah. and I think that like, it's a kind of, cheaper way of doing it and i think also with the uh, the older characters like osha and and rickon in particular i mean both you know they just felt really cruel and unnecessary and i think that you know as someone who read all the books and and and, and those two characters were always interesting to me in terms of their absence you know you always wondered where rickon was and and there were some hints about where his whereabouts at the end of the fifth and the last published book um and then to have him come back and all that happens is he's killed by a character who we've, has been established many, many, many times over as being bad. Well, Ramsey is his own kind of separate problem. Yeah, from all the but death. then those two problems kind of dovetailed yeah. in this way that really bothered me. And I and I think then that gratuitous extra shot of the arrows hitting the kid's dead body, it was just like, oh, for God's Oof. sakes, we get it. And then Osha... Like, we are, yeah, yeah. Same thing happened to Osha. Same guy killed her, you know. I just feel like they used Ramsey as this, ver- as this tool to sort of dispatch with loose plot threads but mm-hmm. also while also trying to kind of cheaply get audience hackles up and like oh they killed this big character when as joanna illustrated it they're not actually that big characters well, you know? the loose plot threads thing seems like kind of what might be making this show which i feel like i've been pretty happy with the season but i the the narrative stasis i agree with you but it's like they've got all these big pieces of setup for the end game that they're moving toward now you know right. we think that there's about probably about 15 episodes left of the whole show between two probably two more seasons and so you th- see things like jamie and at um and the blackfish and you, you kind of know that Jamie's doomed like Jamie does not have a role to play in this future that's being built but they have to save him for a little bit later so they kind of put him on hold for a little while and it, it feels like they've run out of characters that aren't part of the end game and then so people like Ramsey get to like run around and, and ruin everything in the meantime although I do want to say in this in the Battle of the Bastards uh, defense I I think this episode was really beautiful like the money that they spent on it and the production values and the thing you know there was a a shot of Jon Snow kind of in the thick of the battle where, you know, horses are getting wiped out behind him and he turns around and there's a guy on a running by him with his head cut off, like all kinds of crazy things. It, it was really well executed. And I do think Game of Thrones continues to set a level of what television can look like that is pretty spectacular. And there's lots of people trying to copy it and no one's doing it quite as well as they are. I completely agree. Like I thought that the technical aspect of the Battle of the Bastards was was amazing. Um, the best they've ever done by far. And uh, Miguel Sapochnik, who directed Hard Home last season, which also was quite good. Great I thought. battle episode, um, yeah. 
did this uh, very hugely ambitious thing. There's a 12-minute video on YouTube, if you want to go watch, called Anatomy of a Scene about how they shot it, and, and then you'll be even more impressed with what they did and how many horses were there and how long it was that Kit Harrington was on top of Aaron Rowan, like, pummeling his face and all that sort of <laughs> stuff. Like, um, you know, the technical aspect of it is incredible, and that almost makes it, I don't know, worse to me that the emotional stakes, the character errors that I saw in this episode, like, John not actually being a good general when he's been a good general in the past or Sansa inexplicably withholding information just in order to engineer a dramatic deus ex machina uh, result of the battle. Uh, all of those character missteps really undercut what, what I thought was a technically beautiful uh, episode. Shouldn't we be calling it a little finger ex machina or is it a deus ex little finger? I don't know. I think I think Deus Ex Mockingbird is what the uh, internet has oh, landed on. So. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm always delighted to see Littlefinger. And although I noticed the, the thing is like Aiden Gillen's name was in the credits. So you kind of know that he's coming, which is, right. you know, although I think Joanna had already told me she thought the Knights of the Veil were going to show up at the last possible moment. So if you ever, uh, if you ever want to have someone around who feels like a psychic, you can have Joanna tell you, tell you what's going to happen in a given episode <laughs> of Game of Thrones. Well, I mean, the... There is a lot to love about this season, I think. And, like, a lot of ways in which recently characters who have not seemed like themselves are returned to themselves. Like, I've been frustrated by Tyrion all season long, but I thought this was Peter Dinklage's best episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also frustrated by the waste of Jamie for the first half of the season, but ever since they sent him to River Run and away from Cersei, things have been a lot better. I'm pretty much over everything at King's Landing. Um, and well, it sounds like Cersei, so is Cersei, and uh, we're in for a <laughs> conflagration. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. And and to Richard's earlier point, the it's not just that the show needs to hold on to these compelling characters that people um, have latched onto. It's that they're beholden to this murky plan that George R. R. Martin has. That they know the end game. They know what characters have to survive. They don't. I don't believe they necessarily know every step of the way that he intends to get them there. I don't think he knows. So they're having to move these pieces around, knowing that they have to survive, but also engineering um, exciting things to happen in the meantime, while we winnow down the cast to the core characters and uh, head towards what we all assume is a battle between dragons and ice zombies. Well, uh, yeah, yeah speaking of those ice zombies, I had a question for you, Joanna, as our uh, resident expert. Why are people not like running around freaking out about these approaching ice zombies? Like, why why are we having this war for Winterfell when really what the the main fight is is coming from from further north? It was, I'm I'm, ask, I'm asking honestly, like, is there a narrative reason for that, or or am I right to be confused? No, I think you're partially right to be confused. I think they've they've done. They've tried in the last couple episodes to show how little people in the South believe in the White Walkers, because Jamie and Sam's dad both were like, uh, th- those are myths. Those aren't real. Uh, so I don't think, you know, the only people who have seen them are the Wildlings, Jon Snow and Ed. Uh, and I think that's and you know, Sam, about right? it. And Sam and, and Gilly. And Sam and Sam and Gilly. And so, you know, they're having trouble getting people to believe in this myth. But yeah, why did John abandon the wall to go fight for Winterfell when he knows that there are ice zombies coming? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> because Ramsey <laughs> had to go. <laughs> Someone had to go. It's a fantastic question. <laughs> so, you know, they had Rickon. That's why he went. It's sort of about him. Oh, right. You know, and, 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 you know, it's about him abandoning his. Night watch duty and and sort of going back into the Stark family fold, but it's still the whole eye zombie threat is 
a weird one because I think there are some technical reasons why they can't cross through the wall, but it's just weird that they've been, I don't know, ambling, circling the north, like, I don't know, some Sims of like some weird adventure. Um, when you feel like they should be making a concerted attack, there's some indication that they can't cross the wall yet, and maybe they will uh, once Bran gets south of the wall. But it is a really weird, we'll show them once a season, we swear they're coming, winter's coming eventually, yeah. threat on the show, you know? And I had one last logistical question, and I know this is being annoying and pedantic, and but... Okay, so with that same thing of the of the White Walkers kind of being like NPCs in a video game who get stuck and are just kind of in a little circle. <laughs> so why has it taken Daenerys like five years to figure out how to get across the ocean and it took Theon and his sister like two seconds <laughs> to go the other way? I granted they weren't coming with an army, but you know what I mean? Like It's all the horses, like, I think, are, are, the, are the trick. Yeah, are we finally going to see some um, some movement on, on Daenerys, uh, do you think? I feel comfortable saying this because it's not a spoiler because I don't know for sure. I feel like Daenerys is going to land in Westeros this Sunday. I yeah, I I would love. I that. believe I that that's happens. happening. I mean, it needs to finally happen. I'm I'm sick of the yeah. desert. I'm I'm ready. Yeah, you know, in the Battle of Marine, I was like, why are the dragons all focusing on one ship? There's a lot of other ships out there. And then I was like, oh, oh, yeah. Tyrion well, yeah, and she finally, Daenerys she, worked it out. She finally knows how to control them. Like it used to just be a fire spray that she wasn't able to control. Yeah. I don't know when she learned how to control them. There's no evidence in the show that she did, but now she seems to know how to, when she says Dracarys, have a footnote that's like, but just that boat, okay, guys? Because yeah, we need yeah. the rest of the fleet. So that's happening. Um, you know, George R. R. Martin calls this problem the Miranese not um, for Marine. He put Daenerys there and didn't know what to do with her, really. Uh, he is admitted to that by calling it the Miranese not. And and uh, it all ties back to the fact that he wanted to do a five-year time jump in the story. So basically, Arya, John, and Bran, and Daenerys would all be off training, like Daenerys learning how to rule, Arya learning how to be an assassin, Bran learning how to be a three-eyed raven, John learning how to be a general, and then you jump ahead in time five years and they would come back knowing all these great skills. And he didn't manage to make it happen, and so instead we get what are some of the most frustrating parts of the story, where you're so bored watching Arya in the House of Black and White, or you don't really want Bran to be sitting in that cave forever. Um, they made that more interesting with flashbacks this year, but like, you know, and Daenerys is, is I think the most egregious example, where where she winds up with a Dothraki horde that she probably could have had in the first season um, if they she hadn't... she did if, have if in Mar- the first season, right? Well, or the second season, well, she, at least. She had, like, a shaggy, sort of dilapidated version of the massive army she is now, but, like, that they needed those dragons to grow up. I don't know. It's just a big... A big some of the plots are big time stalls, and you can tell. And so I, I think you're right, Richard, that it is well past time that Daenerys get herself to Westeros. Well, I you now have me. Well, I was already excited for Sunday's episode, but the idea of Daenerys landing in Dorne or wherever she winds up on Sunday night that would be uh, very satisfying. The dragons melt the wall with their fire, so the White Walkers can get through, and then we're, we're there. We all are. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, my, just fast my, forward. My theory is that either Cersei burns up the Iron Throne with wildfire, or the dragons melt it down, so that very soon the question of who sits on the Iron Throne is the last question on anyone's mind. Which right. is so what irrelevant. it should have been if anyone was paying attention yeah. to these uh, ice zombies who were wandering around. Exactly. Yeah. Do you like games, little man? Let's play a game. Run to your brother. The sooner you make it to him, the sooner you get to see him again. That's it. 
Easy. Ready? Go. No, you have to run, remember? Those are the rules. Before we go, let's take a look back at the year that Cameron Crowe won that Oscar for Almost Famous for Best Original Screenplay. Uh, Richard and Joanna, looking at the other contenders, which were Billy Elliot, Aaron Brockovich, Gladiator, and You Can Count on Me, what should have won uh, the Best Original Screenplay in 1999? Uh, I'm going to go with You Can Count on Me, a great script by Kenneth Lonergan, who also directed the movie. It was ostensibly Mark Ruffalo's kind of star-making role, another great performance by um, the... Currently kind of missed Laura Linney. Um, she's in the Ninja Turtles movie, I heard. Yeah, that's, that's true. She is. Um, but um, it's a great little movie. came out in 2000, I believe. Yeah. Um, about a brother and a sister. Uh, well, it came know. out, I guess, 99 or 2000. Wait, yeah, I guess this is 2000. I said 99. Yeah. This is 2000. Sorry. Um, a story about a brother and a sister. Uh, and, you know, as I have an older sister who I'm very close with. And, and I feel like narratives like that aren't really told that often on screen. Uh, and I, I liked that about it. Uh, great performances by everybody and just uh, such a, a sharp script. We're going to get to see Lonergan do it again this fall in Manchester by the Sea. Yeah, which, which you've I, seen. I saw at Sundance and is quite strong. Not as strong as You Can Count on Me, which I think is really um, one of the best, if not just movies, what, certainly the, one of the best independent films of, of its decade. So so I'm firmly well, on you. Easy can, choice for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Joanna? You Can Count on Me also has an incredible cello score. It's a really just a very beautiful film that if people haven't seen, they should. Um, I am just so in the tank for Cameron Crowe that I can't even tell you. I can't even <laughs> consider anything else. But I will obviously throw some love to Billy Elliot, which I think is just one of the greatest uh, movies of all time. Uh, and another killer soundtrack. But that's not the point. The point is we're talking about screenplay. And it, it was one of several movies in the late 90s that had to do with like coal miners and Brassed Off and Full Monty and all these sort of things. And, and I think Billy Elliot is the best example of all of that, obviously. Billy is not himself a minor, but the, that that clash, that drama is in the background of this kid's personal drama. It always, I've seen that movie a million times. It always works so well for me. I'm a little sad that it's been flattened a bit by turning into this uh, the stage musical, which I think sort of flattened some of its sharper, uh, quirkier edges uh, to make it more mainstream and con- consumable. But I think Billy Elliot is a tremendous film. But I, I don't think anything matches. Almost famous for um, a writer at the top of their craft telling. There, I think this is, I mean, I hope great things for the future of Cameron Crowe, but I don't think he's ever going to find a film that is uh, a project that is as personal to him uh, and his own experience. And, and every single great writer, I hope, finds this story and tells it um, that just feels true at every turn. Yeah, I probably wouldn't take away Almost Famous as Oscar either, but I did want to stick up for Aaron Brockovich, which is an incredibly satisfying movie. It really uh, holds up. It's a, you know, Soderbergh talking about people being on top of their game this year when he had this in traffic. Um, and is uh, you know it's got a great star performance that anchors it, but I think the story about the screenplay written by Susanna Grant really uh, does a lot of the legwork there. So uh, credit, this was a pretty good year. I mean, yeah. Gladiator's a really good movie too. Yeah. And Susanna Grant also you know wrote a fantastic character piece mm-hmm. that also has to deal with like hexavalent chromium and all these yeah. like you yeah, know yeah, that yeah. she actually gets the science in there in a way that's probably pretty simplified, but like it still works and, and the story feels credible and so that's a, that's a tricky balancing act. Is hexavalent chromium, is that really the term? You remember I, it? I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm guess. I, I think I I've seen it. that movie a lot. <laughs> you know, I don't remember fully. But yes, you're right, Katie. It was a fantastic year for, every, for the whole the whole lineup. It was great. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, the evening is over. 
We hope you all enjoyed yourselves, and we'll see you all again in 1974. Good evening! Well, that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you, as always, for listening. And uh, rate us and review us on iTunes if you have a moment. It helps us find new listeners, and we appreciate it. Uh, You can find us all at VanityFair.com and on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Joanna? I'm at Joe Rothis. And Richard. Rylaws. This episode was produced by Sam Dingman, and thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for most meta review of the show Fringe goes to Joanna Robinson. All the fringy stuff, I think, is the very best of the show. Always with me, tiny dancing.